G'day legends, just a quick note before we get into this episode. I really hope you're enjoying the podcast, and if you are, I reckon you'll love my vlog over on YouTube, Skulls Weekly. After almost 300 episodes of my daily vlog, Skulls Stories, we wanted to continue to make it interesting and add value to you guys as cricket lovers and cricketers, cricket coaches, and so we've changed it up. We're making it a much higher quality production. We're trying to give as much value as we can, and we've made it a weekly vlog, Skulls Weekly. We've had some excellent feedback so far. So guys, head over to YouTube, search Cricket Mentoring. Please subscribe, like, share, comment, etc. And check out my new vlog, Skulls Weekly. Welcome to the Cricket Mentoring Podcast. I'm Tom Scolle, or Skulls as I get called, and this podcast has been designed for cricketers and cricket lovers who want to learn and improve themselves. In this podcast, we interview past, current and future cricket stars to find out more about their journey and what makes them successful, while also sharing some audio from ourselves at Cricket Mentoring. Our goal is to help you become your best on and off the field, so I hope you enjoy this podcast and get something valuable out of it. Welcome back or welcome to the Cricket Mentoring Podcast. If you're listening to this during the coronavirus, then I hope this podcast finds you well and gives you some lessons or inspiration to live your best life. I absolutely love sharing the unique and individual stories of cricketers at different stages of their career on this podcast. Today's guest is someone who has already done some great things in the game, but at 25 years of age has his best cricket still ahead of him and some huge ambition to go with it. As an opening batsman for South Australia and the Adelaide Strikers, Jake Weatherald is the three-format player who is one of the most exciting batters in Australia. In this first part of our conversation, we discuss Jake's early days of playing cricket and how it wasn't all smooth sailing for him. When watching Jake on TV, he comes across as one of the most elegant and free-flowing batters in the game. But as you'll hear, there is a lot of thought and planning and an enormous amount of hard work that goes into his game, which was a result of being a lazy but quite skilled teenager. Without giving away any more, this is a story that I'm sure will inspire a lot of young cricketers out there. So let's get into it. G'day legends and welcome to this episode of the Cricket Mentoring Podcast. I have a very special guest today, Jake Weatherall. Jake, thanks for joining me, mate. Uh, cheers for having me. So guys, this is the first time I've ever done it in this format via Zoom, a video um, conversation. But those that might not have come across Jake Weatherall, some of our overseas listeners maybe, Jake's played 44 first-class matches with six centuries and nearly 3,000 runs, 25 list-day matches, uh, three runs short of 1,000 list-day runs at a, at a very good average of 41.5 and 48 T20s at a strike rate of 130 and possibly best known for his 100 in the Big Bash final. Thanks a lot for joining me, Jake. Now, let's take it back to where it all began you were born in Darwin in 1994. You're 25. Tell us your earliest memory of playing cricket. My earliest memory probably come uh, a guy called Thomas Andrews who's played a bit of big bash and a bit of first class cricket himself in South Australia. He was uh, I was great mates with him at school, so um, he decided I was playing football and didn't really care much for cricket. And he said when I was about eight, come out and play a bit of cricket with me and my. My old man and I sort of went out with him and fell in love with the game after that and it's just sort of big, ventured on from there. So Big yeah. Ronnie Andrews. Yeah, big Ronnie, yeah. He sorted it all out for me. Um yeah, he was always taking me to training, always sought me out. So yeah, he was great. Ronnie Andrews was my N T under seventeens and nineteens coach. So um I know Ronnie really well and oh, Tommy really? was 
Tommy was just a young guy when I was in the territory. He was just a, like similar to you. You're uh, seven years younger than me. So you boys would have been sort of young teenagers, I guess, or yeah. sort of 10, 11 year olds when I was there. So yeah, I know Ronnie well and what a legend he is. So shout out to Ronnie Andrews. Yeah, yeah, he's a funny man. Yeah, yeah. He, so those that don't know, I grew up in Alice Springs. So Jake and I have a few similarities. He was from Darwin. Tell us a bit about what it looked like playing cricket in Darwin then. Who did you play for and what was your, your teenage years like playing in Darwin? Um, yeah, so my teenage years were pretty pretty small in Darwin. I was 30, uh, 14 when I left down to South Australia. But up until then, I played for Darwin Cricket Club. Um, we had a few other guys who um, were pretty good at cricket, which was lucky. We had a few guys that sort of dragged us forward. Sometimes you get stuck in the territory with... Um, you know, probably less quality around you. So it was lucky. Thomas Andrews, he ended up playing first-class cricket. The guy called Luke Robins, who was playing for the Pints Club as well in the same, um, in the same competition. And Pat Paisel, we played. Uh, he was contract with New South Wales and played for Mossman now. So we all grew up together. And um, playing for Darwin, I was playing A-grade cricket when I was 13. So um, it, was a pretty, it was pretty cool that I got to play senior cricket. And Ronnie was a big part of that. Sort of pushed me into the the A-grade side when I was quite young. And um, I didn't pretty much play, didn't play any junior cricket when I was, when I got to about 13. So um, I had the experience of playing against men from a young age, but um, because in all fairness, we were playing uh, uh, 17s and 15s and stuff. I didn't think we would even lose a game for 80 games straight. So um, it was sort of, um, it's sort of, if we didn't play senior men's cricket, we didn't really get challenged. So it was great to have a guy like Ronnie Andrews pushing us into the higher grades at a very young age. And were you selected in the A grade or the first grade on the back of potential, or were you just so good that they thought, "Yep, this is one of our best six batters in the in the club"? Um, yeah, it's pretty hard to tell now. But probably looking back, oh, hard to tell then. But looking back, when I was probably just based on potential, I'd made a few runs in B grade cricket. I'd played C grade year before when I was about twelve, um, and made a few runs there, and, and I made a couple fifties in B grade the week before, the week before that, the week after, before that as well too. So. I probably had the runs on the board, kinda. Um, yeah. Probably looking back on it, it's probably not not enough really. But yeah, I got put in, and um, yeah, it was sort of we were a pretty strong club and a pretty strong team. So we had a few guys who, have, well, looking back on it, quite strong in the A grade system. So um, yeah, we I was batting at six and seven and sort of just hiding away, but getting good experiences, which was great. That is an amazing experience at thirteen. I, I know a lot of guys who have made their senior sort of first grade debut at fifteen or fourteen, but thirteen is incredibly young. What prompted you to move to South Australia at 14? Was that a decision your family made for other reasons or was that for cricket or, or why did you leave the Territory at 14? Yeah, well, it probably was probably an eye on playing cricket, but at the same time, um, I never really took cricket as a profession, probably by the way I trained and the way I went about cricket. I wasn't the biggest um, so-called trainer or worked very hard at all. I was purely based on pure talent and, um, yeah, just being a big fish in a small pond, kind of. So um, I sort of went down for academic reasons as well. I was struggling a little bit at my school in Darwin. Um, it probably wasn't the greatest, no offence to the Darwin education system. My dad's a teacher. So, um, but um, it just was hated for me. And a lot of people weren't going on to do many good things there. So I, I decided, my parents decided to send me down to Prince Alfred College in Adelaide. And um, yeah, boarded for a year. And yeah, it was a great experience and a great learning curve for me. And then after that, so you say, I assume you're 15 then a year later. Did your parents move down yep. or how did you, how did 15 to 18 until you finished school look in terms of your living situation? Um, yeah, so my parents moved down when I was 16 or 15. So in the year 10, they moved down. Or my mum moved down. 
um, my mum and my stepdad. Um, so they moved down, or she moved down to for work. Um, and then she sort of, I moved out with her because it was cheaper, a cheaper option. Um, you can only get academic scholarships at Prince Alfred College. So uh, once my academics weren't going too well, they sort of been my academic scholarship, which is pretty funny. Um, <laughs> so um, I got taken out of that. And thankfully my parents were happy to pay for my schooling there. And um, I just went through the rest of the years like that. And um, looking back on it, probably going to a private school there was a great opportunity for academics, but in terms of cricket and stuff like that, sort of cut you a bit short because you had to play school cricket and um, instead of club cricket. So looking back on it, it probably probably great for my academic, academics part of my life, but um, in terms of the cricket, it probably held me back a bit, I reckon. Um, but yeah, it was a, a good experience all round, but in terms of just purely cricket, probably wasn't the greatest thing for me. So how did your cricket progress then? From when you left, you, you were playing as 13th A grade in Darwin, you moved to Adelaide um, when you're 14. How did you progress throughout that period and how did you get back into the system in South Australia, I suppose? I was pretty lucky that um, uh, South Australia were pretty keen on getting me within the training within the South Australian squads and stuff like that. I did playing, I played 15s when I was young. Um, I played, I was playing 17s when I was 15, 14, 15 years old. So um, they were happy to, for me to come and train with the South Australian squads, the 19s underage squads. Um, I couldn't play for them because I was a Territorian, but um, they, were, they were great and making me come and train and stuff like that. And, um, yeah, and apart from that, it was sort of a bit a bit hard sometimes because you actually spend 90, 98% of your time training with these boys and then suddenly you have to go play for the Territory. And I loved playing for the Territory, but um, yeah, it was a weird experience because you train all, all winter with them and then go out and play 19s and 17s with territory and yeah you generally wouldn't go too well because it'd be one or two players that would do it half decently and everyone else would struggle a little bit but that's just how it was so you were you were training and living in adelaide and you'd been there for four, three or four years but you were still going back to play 17s and 19s for the nt yeah sort of sort of worked out it was a double a double whammy for south australia you know we could they could play more state players in their state playing south australia and we weren't going to leave south australia so i felt as though that we could play the territory get exposed to um, the championships and you know still play and they could play more South Australian so um, and we wanted to play for the territory looking back on it, it was a pretty cool experience to be able to represent the territory and we had some close mates still living there um, but yeah it was it was pretty a tough time we didn't really win many games in the 19s and when the when the competition got a bit better and blokes started buying a bit faster we got found out pretty a fair bit so yeah well I know that feeling I went to I represented the NT at four 19s carnivals and there weren't too many <laughs> There weren't too many successes over those years and I captained a few of them. So it wasn't, I can feel your pain there. You're always envious yeah, of yeah. Um, the guys you're coming up against. New South Wales and those guys had some unbelievable players of my era, Warner and Smith yeah, and those sort of guys. So oh, that's it was, amazing. It was, uh, it was a great experience though. Kid from Alice coming and playing against those sort of guys. Now, we've got a lot of young listeners. Um, so give us an insight to you as a 16-year-old and then again, maybe fast forward to it when you're 18 or 19. What did your cricket look like? How often were you training? How many balls a week were you hitting? At what point did you think this is something I love and enjoy and I'm pretty good at it and I want to take it more seriously and maybe play professionally one day? Yeah, I'm a pretty pretty bad example of a professional cricketer. When I was preparing to be a professional cricketer, I was 16. I was probably doing the opposite of what you should be doing, really. I was pretty much... All I was doing was chasing girls and when I was 16, not doing much. I'd be training twice a week at best, maybe. Um, I didn't really consider myself as a professional cricketer or wanting to, I wanted to be a professional cricketer but as again when you're, when you're at a college and all your mates are doing other things and I just probably fell into that trap a bit and you know 
maybe rightly or wrongly, it probably held me in good stead for when I finished school, when I realised I had to do something else with my life. And actually, if I want to become a professional cricketer, I've got to hit more balls and train way harder and actually realise the, the, the structure of how to be a good cricketer. And I really didn't learn that until I was older. So as a young kid, I sort of was just a raw cricketer that just, you know, had a hit when I wanted to. And yeah, it was pretty, I was pretty uh, poor in terms of the way I went about it. But it was a, in looking back on it now, it's probably why I'm so precise and so um, anal about doing things so right now is because I had those experiences when I was younger. So it's probably a different path to a lot of other people. A lot of people probably, you know, prepare a lot and get ready as the kids and understand everything when they get to 18, 19, they're probably you know, develop their technique. The ones that I feel as are really good players, are, you know, they're, they're not ready to go at 19, but they're, you know, they've had a lot of balls and a lot of things behind them. I sort of didn't have that. So I was always playing catch up a little bit, which was made things tough for me a little bit when I was, when I'd left school and started playing eighth grade just cricket. I probably was, you know, started to realise how much I needed to train. But when I didn't get the results, I started, you know, questioning myself, do I want to play anymore and all that sort of stuff. And, um, so I found it quite hard when I left school to play district cricket because it wasn't always coming my way. And I just, it always had been playing school cricket, which is quite easy, playing, you know, stuff and down, which I always found quite easy. And suddenly to be finally challenged. Um, it could have gone either way, really, but thankfully it went the right way. And I think what, what I love about this podcast and the reason I do it really is everyone's story and journey is unique. So like you say, it's, it's not the way Steve Smith sort of grew up with cricket, but it's your journey. And it, it, like you say, it's allowed you to be who you are today. Very meticulous, very well planned and very well prepared from having been through that experience. So there's no right or wrong way. Everybody does it their own way. And if you can make it to the professional level, which you've done and you've been very successful, you've done it your way. So um, when you, when you sort of say you, you came out of school and you were being challenged, how, how did you deal with that in that moment? Yeah, well, people say that, um, you know, I probably just went and chopped and changed heaps. I went and just did everything. I trained hard, I worked hard, I changed my game every week, watched footage, did everything. I was just, I was set on becoming a professional cricketer. When I got to 19, when I'd finished school, I had a year playing A-grade cricket. I didn't make 100 all year until the last game. And the year after, I got put into the emerging squad for pretty much doing nothing in the South Australian emerging squad, which is like a, a team that's like, People like that identified potentially get a contract. I was 19 at that stage, and I just said I'm just going to go for it. And the way I did it was um, was fine, but I just went through so many technical changes, so many mental battles because things weren't going the way you wanted to on the park, which is probably fair enough because you're changing so much and wanted to be so good. Um, and I just yeah, just my scores went downhill. I didn't bat very well. I you know. You know, potentially getting dropped down to B grade, but thankfully my club was great um, with that stuff, and they saw that I was trying so hard. Um, so I had to go through the battles that you probably should go through when you're a bit younger um, in trying to develop yourself. And you know, going two steps back to go two steps forward, I was doing it probably a bit later in my career. Um, well, not late, but just a, at a weird time when people, when you're supposed to be, you know, hitting the ball beautifully and stuff like that. I was probably on the other end where I was hitting the ball terribly and was training my ass off, but wasn't getting anywhere. So um, did that frustrate that, just, you? Yeah, it did to quite a degree where I just said, oh, I'm not going to make it. Um, and then I just sort of, I was lucky that I had some good mentors in um, my club side. The two Borgus brothers who both play first class cricket, you know, they were at the club with me. And they, they just said, it'll come, something will happen. You know, everyone goes to what you're going through right now. Um, 
And I sort of, thankfully, I realised that and just said, oh, look, I'm just going to keep going and keep going. It's just not going to, eventually, like anything, it's just going to give way and things are going to come your way. So I, I probably, I probably realised that because I hadn't done the work early in my career, um, I deserve not to be as good as what, what I wanted to be straight away. I didn't deserve the right to be there and that. And, you know, I've always been a massive advocate of 10,000 hours. So um, I thought that I hadn't actually put the, um, the hours in the bank to actually say I was successful. Um, so I just had to put my bum down and, and just grind away. Yeah, that's so much, so much value there. So many interesting, um, interesting points. What you've just mentioned, your mentors, were there other people throughout your career who have played a, a big part and sort of helped you get to where you are today? Yeah, there was. The, probably the biggest one was a guy called Tony Judd. He was a, he coached Scotland. Um, um, he'd come back to the NT and did my last 19s. He was my, uh, he made it, he actually said to me uh, when I was 19, that year that I went back up the down to play grade cricket. Um, he said to me, look, you need to come train with me for, for six months in Darwin. He had access to the NTIS gym, um, which is a, you know, Institute of Sport gym. Um, he had access to facilities, turf wickets. And he said, you know, the bonus is you'll play some club cricket on the weekend. So I went up there when I was 19 years old and just trained every day with him. Um, and he was awesome. He taught me a lot of things that I probably wouldn't think about. He started making me think about how to play spin better and, and, and interesting ways to how to play it, which I'd never thought about. Being such a raw cricketer with no technical thoughts and no game plan, I just it really opened my eyes out to what, what, could, what could possibly be when you actually delved into batting. Um, and he just purely made me work hard on every asset of my, my cricket. It was fitness, mental and batting. It was everything inside it. So I was probably racking up four or five hours a day every day for... Uh, a, a whole week, every for the last for six months, um, and it showed. I'd come off a grade season where I made no runs, and then I went into this grade season, albeit that systems a lot, you know, not the great same standard, but ended up making you know seven or eight hundreds in a row, um, and then from there I got, I was from there sort of my career ever since that has just gone to another another level, thankfully. So it was that was probably the biggest part of my career that that six months. Awesome, awesome. Now we'll go back to that in a second, but. Throughout those couple of years when school finished, how were you surviving financially and what were you doing during the week? Were you working? Were you studying? How did you make things work outside of cricket? Yeah, it was pretty funny. I was saying I was I was aspiring professional cricketer that trained twice a week for t- <laughs> <laughs> when I was 18. But um, no, nah, um, I was very lucky. My mum and dad supported me a lot. Um, my mum, although she told me I should get a job, she was just happy I was at the house and around. But yeah, I, I worked in IGA for a little while um, and that, you know, I worked for a tiling company as well. Um, and then I just realised that, you know, work is not for me. Um, I was so undedicated to it. And when things don't, like most people, but I'm terrible at it. If I don't like, like it, I just don't want to be there. And it was such a bad, I was so bad at my job, so bad at working at the IGA that I couldn't even like put out fruit and stuff like that. I just got so <laughs> bored and got told off all the time. So I ended up being a, quite a terrible, I was the, probably the easiest job on the planet and I was so bad at it. So I mean, I just said, look, it's not for me. I'm going, I'm going to go try to become a professional cricketer. And that was after about a year and a half. So, um, and they're all thankfully worked out. Let's take a break from Jake for a minute and go back to last episode with Naomi Datani. At that point in time, like I said, you, you came back and you didn't have a contract for the inaugural Kia Super League the first season. 
You then got one. You had two seasons with the Surrey Stars and then two seasons with the Western Storm. Yeah. What was this Kia Super League like? What did it do for women's cricket in the UK? And how did you feel in that environment playing with and against some of the best players in the UK? Uh, the Kia Super League, for the four years that it's run, it's, it's been such a big change and an important change for women's cricket. Um, more people have taken notice. We've had average crowds of around three, four thousand people watching the game. We've had young girls get buying the merchandise and picking up a cricket bat. And the uptake of um, girls' cricket has come on so much more. And I think the Kia Super League's done a very good job in kind of kickstarting everything that's happening now. So um, it was definitely really good. And it was almost the first time professional a professional setup was created for domestic county players as well. So aside from the England girls having the professional setup to play the international games, the level below didn't really experience anything like that. So you've got so many more county players who have experienced what a professional setup feels like with having four or five coaches looking after you, your nutrition, your psychology, um, your recovery. So having that experience almost bridges the gap between your county player and, and moving on to the next level. So it's served a really good purpose for, for all the county players and, and also generating a new, um, new wave of girls playing the game too. Now let's get back to Jake. So you mentioned previously about the 10,000 hours and believing in that. Going to Darwin yep. and spending that six months with Juddy, who I've met a few times in my sort of recent trips to Darwin. He's a great guy. Shout out to yep. Juddy. Um, that obviously contributed towards your 10,000 hours, but what point did you start to think or realise that your skill was getting to a level that was, was close to being successful, close to getting to that 10,000 hours? Well, it would have probably been... I, yeah, as I said, I never really developed the sort of training method um, in order to, and I remember I read that 10,000 hour thing one day and I just said, oh, I'll probably, I'd be nowhere near that. Um, and I'm trying to say that I want to become a professional cricketer and I want to play first class cricket in a year's time. Oh, I've got to get some catching up to do. So I just started to develop some sort of protocol in order to get there. Um, and and did you do that on your own? Of... Did you do that on your own or did you get assistance with someone to sit down and plan everything out? I did that purely on my own um, because after the year, after my first year of grade cricket, when I was in the emerging squad, um, I'd been sacked off and they said, look, I don't think you're ever going to play first class cricket. So I sort of, that's when I was, uh, I was 19 at that time when I, so it was a year after my school. So I was 18 nights so of the year after I turned 19. And then, so when I was 19, I was not with the emerging squad anymore. That's when I went to Darwin and said, oh, let's get on with it. Let's start doing something. Um, so I just said, I had the idea that I was never going back to South Australia. I was going to go to Victoria or Tasmania or something and, and change my whole career. So the 10,000 hour rule came into my mind. I said, I'm going to have to do this all by myself here with the work of Juddy. Juddy had no idea about this, but I said, I was going to train for a certain amount of hours every day, um, just to feel as I want to catch up. Um, and thankfully it worked. And I know some people don't think about that in that regard, but for me, it sort of structured things for me. The amount of hours I was putting in allowed me to free up my mind a bit to make sure that I was concentrating on, um, on quality and quantity at the same time. So the sessions had to be quite planned out. Some days you work on short ball stuff, some full ball stuff, and, and actually it got quite specific, you know, even how, how playing a cover drive, it, you spend 45 minutes making sure you played it perfectly. So um, 
you know, the training sessions were all purposeful and they're all, you know, quite unique. They weren't just going in there for an hour and just standing around for an hour. I was getting some solid stuff done and that's the only way I felt I was going to catch up. And was that being led by you? You going to Juddy and saying, I want to work on this today? Or was that him saying, right, we've got to work on this today? No, that was purely by me. Juddy had no say in what we'll do in any session. I'd rock up. All he'd pretty much do is just rock up three hours and feed me balls in the bowling machine. So, or he'd throw me balls. I'd say, I want to work on my sweep today. And we'd just sit there and he'd just throw me balls for three hours. Um, he was as simple as that. He said, your career, you decide what you want to do. If you invest enough, you know what to do. So, mm. um, and that sort of went down to researching everyone else, all the players I loved, all the players I wanted to be, um, how I wanted to go about it, what I wanted to be as a cricketer. I'd do all that research myself. Um, and thankfully, it worked out. I was able to um, nut out some things that I really wanted to be good at and work from there, really. Awesome, awesome. Now, you spoke about um, the fact that you were a raw cricketer with no technical thoughts or no game plan. And I think sometimes you can see in the way you play, having sort of seen you on TV a few times, you can see that you've got that natural sort of flair and flow and a beautiful swing. And that's probably comes from being that raw cricketer without that sort of stiff technique. But at what stage did you start to really have technical thoughts and have a game plan and understand it? Was it that six months in Darwin or was it further beyond that? No, the six months in Darwin was pure load. It was pure muscle memory for me. and technical things, although they were big, I never really understood them. I didn't understand what a technique really, what a technique structured, how it was thought. I actually never really thought about it until uh, probably my second or third year into first class cricket, really, um, which is amazing. I was with Buck um, that I started doing it. Um, he was the first person to ever actually challenge me on my technique um, and actually say to me, do you understand the fundamentals of batting? I just remember sitting there going, I have no idea about that. Yeah. I have no idea what you're saying. Um, and that led, led me down another journey and probably the next 10,000 hour journey that I needed to take um, after my first one I always realised that you know that's my next journey and again you had to go two steps back to go one step forward again so but I understood that challenge I understood that was how I was going to have to go about it in order to be where I wanted to be um, and that journey started again so it was you know meeting him as I said was a great experience for me because it opened my eyes up to probably a wider range of cricket and if I wanted to be a a better cricketer because I was sort of, I was sort of so inconsistent with my game and so inconsistent. I never really understood why. Um, some days I trust my technique, some days I wouldn't, and and that's probably down to the fact that I had no idea what I was doing. Yeah, well, um, the reason we've connected is through Buck. Obviously, he's become a mentor to you. He's a great mate of mine. Um, he's a fantastic batting coach, and we speak daily about sort of batting and coaching and all sorts. And he spoke very fondly of the guys that were up at the NP, sort of NPS at the MPC that year, you and Josh Flip, who I've become sort of good mates with, and Jack Edwards. And he's followed your careers really closely since and, and really sort of cared about you guys and, and wants to see you guys do well. Give us some more insight into what you were doing on a sort of daily or weekly basis with Buck up there. What were you, how was he helping you understand your technique? Well, he probably, first and foremost, he probably... Uh, my first session with him was pretty funny. I sort of I walked in the nets and I, I, you know, I was trying to impress him. You know, Australian batter, my, one of my idols, actually, in all fairness, um, because he was the opposite to me. I just loved him as a cricketer, watching him and stuff like that. So I walked in the net. I wanted to impress him, and remember the whole session. He just shook his head and sort of just went off. Oh, this guy's got, and I just felt like I had nothing. I had no idea what I was doing. Um, you know, I made first class hundreds. I felt as though I was all over it. But that session, I walked away, and he just pulled me aside and said, there's some things to work on. Um, 
Um, and uh, at the end of the day, I, I walked away going far out, like, stuff that bloke, you know, I, I know way more than him. But then I was like, you know what? I'm actually not good enough to say that. Um, so. And that takes, that takes real self-awareness. I was about to say, a lot of people um, in that moment would be like, oh, like they'd get a, put a shield up and say, yeah. oh, who's this bloke? He doesn't know about me. He doesn't know about me. I'm not going to listen to him. But I think it takes real self-awareness and maturity to say, that actually, no, this guy probably can offer me a lot of value. So well done. Sounds like that's what you did. Yeah, so thankfully, and he approached it quite well. He was pretty good with that stuff. Um, he was quite a raw coach himself. So he had his thoughts and wanted to stick by them. Um, and I realized in my mind, I was like, you know what? This is the first person to really come to me in a way that, um, and, and try a challenge thing that I probably never thought of. And I thought, I actually want to go down this path in order to get myself better. So from there, he, you know, he gave us footage. He went, went and watched the best players in the world and explained in quite a thorough way about what he thought was the fundamentals of batting. Um, and from that, you started to believe what he was saying because he gave you the evidence and the, and the support when he was at net sessions to try things and also get better and actually be allowed to, to fail in certain aspects. Um, and he was so good with that stuff. And he filmed you batting. He gave you some great um, great feedback straight away after training sessions. So you feel as though you were developing in a way that was getting you better for the future, not just in, in two months' time, but in five years' time when you walked onto a potentially playing test career for your country that you had this back, you had this knowledge and all this support and all these fundamentals all down packed. And, you know, that was what I'd never probably had as a, with a coach. Um, no coach actually sat down with me and been so thorough and probably and so um, involved in your game that um, actually felt quite supportive, but also you went to training every day with something to work on and it was great. Awesome, awesome. And has he continued to support you and, and sort of guide you, I suppose, from afar since then? He has, yeah. He's been great. He's probably my um, person I probably go to the most um, with my game. Um, he watches all my games and messages me no matter how I go. And, and he's great and he's very optimistic. Being a player, he's recently played. There's some, you know, some people talk negatively about people that become coaches after they just play. But what great aspect about him is he hasn't forgot how hard it is. Um, and things don't always go your way when you're out there in the middle. And, you know, if, you're, if you did everything perfectly out of the middle and you were able to block out all the negative thoughts, you'd make runs all the time. So um, even if I, you know, stuff up or do something wrong, and he sort of straight on the phone said, look, you know, you actually did some things well, but, you know, open the batting's tough. Um, so he's great like that. He's also brings in everything to perspective a little bit um, when things are going tough. When they're going well, he makes sure that you stay on level playing field and, you just, yeah, you just cruise along and it's just another day in the office. Awesome, awesome. Great to hear that. Um, I know he's, yeah, very passionate about seeing you do well. So winding it back to your career for a little bit, um, tell us about the progression from grade cricket into back into the um, South Australian squad and then ultimately into making your first um, class debut. Uh, in. I've got it here somewhere in February 2016 where you got runs in the first innings. Tell us about that time, how you got in there and then about your debut. Yeah, it was a pretty interesting time. I sort of came back with a very different attitude into my game. I just came in with the absolute thought of, I'm absolutely going to dominate this. I'm not going to let anyone stop me. Um, I'm doing it my way. And that's and if they don't want to, if they don't want to pick me, then, um, or if they don't want me in the squad after that, then I've given it my all. So I probably came in with this view that I was just going to train harder than everyone else. That was ultimately my goal, was just to train harder than everyone else. Not smarter. That was... That came in the longer run, but the first, my first aspect was I was going to train harder than everyone else just to compare myself. And, you know, I was great at Lakes Carey. He was in the squad with no emergence squad with me at that time. Um, 
So me and him just shot it out the whole time. It was great feeding off him. And then we both, after we went back to grade cricket, so we had a pre-season with the emerging squad, got into grade cricket. Me and him started, dominated grade cricket and uh, Premier League comp that we have there. Um, and then we played second level cricket together. Both made hundreds. Oh, I made 100, he made 80 in a game against WA. And then after that, we both actually hit debuted a couple of years before that and had the same instance as me, been sacked off and then had come back through. So we both played again in Coffs Harbour. Um, so that was a great experience. I was playing Doug Bollinger, um, a guy that I had, you know, watched in test cricket and stuff like that, rolling the first over to me. So um, it was pretty surreal. I'd come from, you know, not even being in the South Australian squad at the straight to start the um, winter to, you know, facing Doug Bollinger in the fourth last game of the year. So it was a pretty uh, quick turnaround. But as I said, it was so I was still so raw then too. And technically, I had no idea what I was doing. I just My game plan was just to, you know, play straight. And just, you know, if I thought I could score, I'd score. Um, and it was, it was as simple as that. Probably as simple as I make it now. But, you know, there was no information behind why that was the case. It was just go out there and have a bit of fun and enjoy it. And, yeah, thankfully, it's, I've been able to, you know, find my way through the rest of my Shield career without, um, you know, taking too much of a fast step back. And, yeah, it's been a good development. Well, you were obviously playing with a lot of freedom and, and a carefree sort of attitude. And now you really understand what you're doing a lot better. In that first game, you got yep. 58 in the first innings and then 23 off 19 in the second innings. Were you just seeing the ball and hitting it and putting away bad balls? Or were you taking the game on there on that, in that debut? Or how was that uh, second innings? Yeah, it was pretty much the same as. I just, you know, I walked out there well in front of the game. I said, you know, we lost. Um, well in front of the game, I walked out there and Trent Copeland was bowling. Um, I had no idea who this bloke was, to be honest. I'd never heard of him. Um, so it was pretty funny. I just thought he bowled dibbly dobblies and I thought this guy was never going to play again. I ended up finding out he played test cricket and he's got me out a few times since. <laughs> So I just, he bowled a few back of length balls and I hooked him a few times, cut him a few times. Um, Doug was, Doug, would, Doug had slowed down a bit from the first innings. Um, it just sort of ended up being, yeah, and then I just, I nicked off. Um, and I cut, I, yeah, I nicked off, I think. Um, nicked off to, to Copes and I just walked off going far out. That bloke's terrible. Um, I can't believe I just got out to him. And all the boys had, you know, said, oh, far out. That's not the last time you'll get the Copes, I reckon. So um, yeah. it was a pretty funny scenario, but... And Mucha came, uh, Jamie Siddons came to me and said, oh, what are you doing, mate? You can't just nick it off. And I was like, oh, I was bowling. he was bowling absolutely terrible. What was I supposed to do? Um, so it was, it was a weird environment to be in because, um, you know, I'd found that so successful just going out there and trying to score. Um, but, yeah, you know, first-class cricket, as soon as you make a mistake, um, not only you are going to feel it from the opposition, but your teammates and everyone else are going to be like, what are you doing, mate? You can't get out doing that. So, yeah, those battles, had, you know, haunted me for the rest of my career up until now, really. You sort of don't really know what to do until and how to bat and how to go through innings is because you just sometimes you just, you make mistakes doing stupid stuff and, you know, you, have, you, don't have to, you always face the consequences off the field as well as on the field. So it's a tough, it's a tough thing to deal with sometimes. How much do you then value other people's opinions? So if, you've, if you're getting out doing something that's your game and you're good at and someone says, what are you doing, mate? You're being silly. How, how do you go about still trusting yourself and still backing your plan? And, and throughout your career, have you then thought, oh, that's something I need to change, even though maybe it shouldn't have been? Like, how have you dealt with other people's feedback? Oh, pretty badly at times. But at the same time, it's probably some people say don't 
you know, you know, deal with criticism and stuff like that. But at the same time, I didn't have, as I said, I didn't feel as I had the hours and the knowledge to support what I was doing in my mind. I sort of walked away um, because I hadn't done the amount of preparation, the amount of hours and the amount of training and the amount of games and all that to actually say, no, no, this is going to work. Um, that's probably the hardest thing I had to deal with because um, people have you have opinions about everything you do. So ultimately making a decision, what you think is best for you sometimes gets, you know, taken away when a guy has played, you know, hundred shield games, walks up to you and says, no, that's not good enough, mate. You need to change something. So that was a big, that was very hard for me to, to deal with, especially being the type of player I was going to, I was trying to become and was at that time. I, you know, people would love me if I was scoring runs quickly and making hundreds. But as soon as I, you know, got out early and put the team under pressure. Um, so I realised quickly there that I sort of had to start nailing down what I thought was going to work. Um, and that didn't take me, that took me four, four years now. So I'm, I'm not comfortable. I wasn't comfortable really until, you know, this season, in all fairness. Um, what changed what this I was season? Doing. I, just had, I just feel as though I had the hours and the amount of runs on the ball to do it. I still haven't, I don't feel as though that I've, you know, dominated anything or, but I've started to build some sort of consistency in my game and, you know, developing consistency in my technique, consistency in the way I go about it, uh, consistency in the shots I play and all that sort of stuff. And, um, you know, that took me four years to develop. So at the same time, people who say that sometimes I feel you can be naive when people have an opinion about your game. You don't want to just say, no, no, it's going to work. Because if I didn't do that, I wouldn't be the player now. Because feedback's great. You just got to figure out, you just got to try and wind your way through it. Um, and that's been the, you know, it's been a, a tough thing, but also a great thing. So um, something that I think all young, young players will need to understand is that you're going to get opinions from all over the place. So it's, you've always got to be respectful and I think it's good to try things. But what works for someone who's played 100 Shield games might not necessarily work for Jake Weatherall or to work for someone else. So it's, it's, important, to take, it's important to take on information and, and give things a try but not necessarily have to do it. Even if one of the greatest players ever tells you that that, that might work, it's about figuring things out for yourself, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's actually a totally, it's a totally accurate comment because at the end of the day, you want to be your own player um, and do your own things with your career. That The things you do in your career has got to be you know, personal to you. Um, you've got to do it in the way you want to do it as well. There's no... If you want to rock up the training and enjoy playing, you've got to do it in the way that you want to do it. If you're doing it other people's way and training for the sake of other people's opinions, um, at the end of the day, you just don't enjoy it. And I, I, I rock up now with my own ideas and my own thoughts based on other, you know, learnings I've had. And I rock up training loving every minute of it. Minute of it. So there was days when I'd rock up a training knowing that if I don't do something right, that I'd just be, I'd be walking on eggshells. So it was, those days hopefully they're gone, but yeah, it's one of those things you just needed to, okay, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Sorry. Yeah. Yep. One of those things that you just needed to, you, you, you're going to go through every player that's ever going to play is going to go through because everyone's going to have an opinion about your technique. It's just finding your way through it. And yeah. Hopefully developing your own game from the information you take. Yeah, absolutely. Now what's the moving from grade cricket to shield cricket and having played a lot of shield cricket now, what's the one thing that you've found when you're playing at the higher level that gets tested the most? Um, well, blokes can hit you in the head is probably the biggest one. Um, yeah. The fear factor is probably the biggest one. Um, people don't talk about it because they think it's not true. And but I tell you now, there's no there's no one in grade cricket that's walked bowling in grade cricket that I feel as though is going to you know take me out. But when you play shield cricket, there's one in every team or two in every team. 
Um, and from that, it, it stops everything. You know, your feet don't move. You start second guess your game. You don't want to be there. So it's probably that's probably the biggest difference I find. Great cricket, you walk out there, you know what you're going to get. You know, the ring field, it's going to be a ring field within, you know, 20 overs. Um, first class cricket, they might not have a fielder in front of the wicket for the first 20 overs, apart from mid-off, mid-on. So it's it's one of those things, especially in Australia, with the conditions they are, you just got to, you've got to quickly develop the fact that you're going to get a lot of short balls and a lot of balls going to test the top of off stump. So you've got to be able to develop to leave. And leaving is probably one of the biggest things I had to develop. As soon as I left grey cricket because you don't leave the ball very often in grey cricket they don't they challenge the stumps a lot more they want to get you out LBW bowled as soon as you go to shield cricket they want to nick you off it's the first mode of dismissal they want to take get you out with and if you can't if you can't leave well um, and leave the ball going over the top of the stumps you find it really hard to stay in for long periods of time so how that's did been you, the biggest change how did you develop your leaving is it something you did on the bowling machine is it just through being aware of it and like asking your coach where you're off stump is, how did you become a better lever of the ball? Yeah, it was a pretty interesting um, conversation I had last year. I actually nicked off quite a few times. I was having some few technical issues. Um, I was nicking off so regularly, it was just not funny. Um, and I just remember saying at the start of next year, or the start of this year coming, I said, the one thing I want to take away is I don't want to nick off any, like I don't want to be, that's the one mode of dismissal I, I don't want to have. Um, and that's sort of something I had to develop with Greg Blewett, our batting coach. I sort of said, you know, when you batted, what were you doing? And he sort of said, oh, look, I just try to eliminate ways of getting out. Um, so taking away things, how to get out. And I said, if I got LBW, well, that's my fault. You know, I've missed the ball. I've done something wrong. So he was similar to me. I said, what should I do then? We just said, oh, let's just bat an off stump. Let's, uh, just for a, I sort of, was struggling the fact that I didn't know where my off stump was and I had some technical issues but my first thing was making sure I knew where my off stump was and from there we just worked hard on you know the wanger the machine throws actually throws are a big thing because it, um, they're a bit more lifelike I feel sometimes you can't do it for long but if you can get throws for just a period of time balls going across left-handers um, it was a great thing doing a great thing to do because you could challenge my um, me holding my front side for longer periods of time without squaring up but also, if it was, you know, a, a certain side of my eye, I was able to lead based on length. Um, and having a throw was a bit more accurate and a bit, uh, a bit more lifelike. So, use throws and wanger quite a lot just to make sure I was able to distinguish which ones were hitting the stumps or which ones weren't and which ones I needed to play it and hold my shape and which ones I didn't. So, um, they were big, big things for me in the, in the last, uh, for the pre-season moving up to this season. Um, but, yeah, that was... There were things that we, I really had to work on to get better. Well, legends, I hope you've enjoyed part A of my conversation with Jake Weatherald. As I've said a couple of times already, everyone's stories are unique and different. And I loved hearing how Jake changed himself completely to be the meticulous planner and preparer that he is now. In some ways, our early days of playing cricket have some similarities, with us both playing junior cricket in the Northern Territory and having the same people influential in our lives so I really enjoyed hearing about Jake's journey and his transition from Darwin to Adelaide, which a number of very good young Territorians have done. Some things that really stuck with me from this first part of the conversation are how he went through so many technical changes and mental battles because things weren't going the way he wanted them to, which ended up with him almost being dropped to B grade. Two, how having good mentors at his club helped him to keep going through the tough times when he felt like he was going nowhere. Their reassuring words to keep plugging away and keep showing up kept him believing he was going in the right direction, even if he wasn't getting the results on the field. 
A great reminder to any young athlete that it doesn't always happen, even though you're putting in the work. And a reminder of the importance of having mentors and good people around you. Three, I found it fascinating how he said he realized that because he hadn't done the work early in his career and put the hours of work in that he needed to, that he probably didn't deserve the right to be where he wanted to be. What great self-awareness from an 18 or 19 year old. Four, wasn't it interesting how he said it's taken him four years to nail down the type of player he needs to be to get the most out of himself. Five, I loved hearing how he rocks up to training now with his own ideas and thoughts based on his previous learnings and loves every minute of it. And as he said, you want to be your own player. The things you do in your career has got to be personal to you. And finally, the insight he shared about the importance of leaving the ball well and the difference between playing in grade cricket and playing first class cricket and how he developed that skill and the first thing he needed to know was where his off stump was. I'm sure you will agree that there was so much epic content in this first part of the conversation, hence why I decided to break it into two parts. So stay tuned for the second part to be released very soon. If you enjoyed this episode, then I'd love if you could please share it with a friend, a teammate, or a group of friends. Chuck the link in a WhatsApp or Facebook group or encourage someone who might find it interesting to listen to it. That's it for today's episode. I really hope you're enjoying these fascinating stories from amazing people that I'm sharing with you guys. If you are enjoying this podcast, I'd love it if you could please take 60 to 90 seconds to leave a review as it helps us move up the rankings and get heard by more people. Thanks a lot for listening. Now it's time to go out and get it done, legends. Shop boy.